chased by dogs, hit by mopeds, dodged by lorries, crazy roads in Vietnam and Cambodia. I wasn't in it for the record. I was in it for the adventure. You've used the word reckless numerous times. Yeah. Are you reckless? You look back on it and you think, fucking hell, maybe you got lucky there. I was shit scared. I would have nightmares and I had a lot of doubt, but I had announced it, I had committed. I told people I'm going to do it and I'm a man of my word. I, I'm going to stick to it. And I was picturing every worst case scenario. There's going to be wolves, expect to be attacked. There's going to be blizzards, expect them to be the biggest and the baddest. Not because I wanted to face the biggest, but if I was anticipating worst case scenario and worst case was unfortunately bound to happen, at least I would have been mentally prepared enough to, to tackle it. There was no evacuation plan. I didn't believe I could survive long enough for my local agent to pick me up and get me out. It was do or die at that point. Seems impossible until it's done. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Getting Back Up with me, Anthony Ogogo. In this podcast, I talk to inspiring people, people that have done amazing things in both their life and or career, but only after suffering massive setback and adversity. If you know me, you know that I love a good quote. I love the meanings behind the quote. Now, the quote I started with today, it always seems impossible until it's done, those words were made for today's guest. Ash Dykes is a legend. I'm sure he's going to blow up in the next couple of years. If you haven't heard of this guy, I promise you, you will. He's an adventurer. He's an extreme athlete. He set not one, not two, but three world first records. A world first record. That means the records he set have never been done before or since. Ash, he crossed Mongolia in a world first record. He went through Madagascar in his second world record. And most recently, he, he trekked the whole length of the Yangtze River, which is the third longest river in the world. He's almost died so many times. Some of his stories sound unbelievable, actually unbelievable. He's such a nice guy. He's got this amazing way of, of relating the crazy things he's done to everyday people like me and you. So, get ready for this. Get ready to be inspired by this. He dropped so many golden nuggets of inspiration and hope all across this episode. So, get ready for it. Without further ado, let's get stuck in. Ash Dykes. Here we go. Mate, elite, extreme adventurer, explorer, author, all-round legend, I know now firsthand, a top, top, top fella. Yeah, I appreciate uh, that. Mate, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. You're very You're welcome. Good. Very welcome, young man. So I'm going to ask you a lot of questions today. Go for it. I want to get into you as a, as a person, as an athlete, as a... As a as a, as a as a great great guy, I want to learn about you. The ups, the downs, the twists, the turns, the times you've almost died, the happy times, the sad times. Yeah, I ask you a lot of questions, but the most important question I'm going to ask you today is, how the bloody hell are you, mate? <laughs> I'm good. I'm, I'm lucky to be alive. And that's just this morning. And that's just this morning. And that's just the Jubilee <laughs> line. That is, that is. Yeah, but no, I'm doing great. It's a nice sunny day here in London. I've been living here now for four months, loving the place. And it's, uh, yeah, it's treated me well. Mate, you've done so much crazy stuff in your life. It's been ridiculous. And I've, 
and I mentioned to you on the train earlier as well. Like I'm, I'm kind of new to the podcast world, and yeah. I, I haven't had any training. I just like to get people on and talk to them, yeah, and learn about their stories. You've had an unbelievable life, and you're still only 32. Yeah. Still got so much life left to live. You done some crazy stuff, and we're going to talk all about it. Now, when I think of extreme adventurers, right, and, and the things that you've done, all the times, all the many times you've almost died, you know, the, the malaria, the these bites and those bites and the, the, the mad witch stories that we, we, we <laughs> might touch upon, Yeah, I think, oh, this guy's got to be a lunatic. <laughs> He's got to be a bit tapped in the head, something off of him. You're the nicest man in the world. <laughs> like, like what? Like what? What? What is it that possesses you to do these crazy things? Yeah, uh, you know what? I don't fully know. I guess when I was a youngster, I was—I don't know—I always wanted to get out there, be qualified, qualified in lots of different sort of um, activities. I wanted to master land, air, and sea. You know, I'd look at James Bond and be like, "Boom!" Mm. You know, he, he masters it all. I want to do that action man, all of this. And I was, you know, I was very much an active kid into athletics, into sports. And I guess it was that athleticism and the sort of physical attributes that I had uh, and especially wanted to compete mixed with the love and passion of the world and wanted to travel and hearing stories and watching documentaries, David Attenborough shows, for example, not wanting to sit there on the couch watching it from a TV box, but wanted to get out there and, and live it, be amongst the wildlife. And I guess, you know, over time, over years, this kind of manifested and I wanted to, to go out there and really make it, make it happen, become that real life action man, if you like. You're from Wales. Yes. A very small town, Northern Wales. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to butcher it. So where, where are you from? Old Colwyn. Old Colwyn. Old Colwyn. A small, sleepy place, you know, not a lot going on there. 8,000 people, population. I think it is, yeah, in Old Colwyn, yeah. Um, nice place, you know, on the coast. That's yeah. Pleasant place to be, but it's difficult to to make it in, in Old Colwyn. As I said, there's not a lot a lot going on. You'd need to move either to the cities which would be Manchester further north or Cardiff down south or London. But uh, lots of people retire and, and go to go to the coast near Clandidno, you know, because it's a nice place, safe place. Hey, very similar to me. Uh, yeah. Lower staff, this the most easterly point in the UK, right. which is our tagline. Yeah. Um, what that really means is a pain in the ass to get to, so no one really goes. <laughs> it's a pain in the ass to leave. People don't tend to leave. And it's very hard to want to change the world and be somebody mm. from a small town like that because it's really hard to be what you can't see. Yeah. That, that yeah, exactly. The path hasn't been hasn't been trailed, yeah. uh, the blaze hasn't been trailed before. Yeah. So um, so the the trail hasn't been blazed before. Yeah. So coming from where you come from, did did you make it and I th I think you made three three world first records. Uh, you've made it, you know, and there's still a lot to achieve left and you will, yep. I'm sure, achieve everything you want to achieve in your life. But becoming this 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 legend that you are now, did you become that because of where you came from or in spite of where you came from? Um, possibly a mix, right? I think your environment does help to mould you, the people as well. You know, my family, very supportive. My parents, very loving, very supportive parents. Um, not financially, but in ways that they'll support me emotionally. The way the the way in where it's needed, the important stuff. Yeah, money's like, money, but love and, yeah, and support is exactly that's what that's that's, that's difference making. Yeah, and they would always say that, you know, you can do what you want to do, but no one's going to help you. 
you've got to do the hard work yourself. So I learned that from a young age, you know, I learned that, okay, if I want something, no one's going to fucking give it to me. I got to put in that effort, put in those hours, put in that grind and achieve it myself. And I think that was important, you know? And you've really taken that on. <laughs> you've really done like really done things on. yourself. Yeah, yeah. Which we'll hear about later. So growing up in a small town in, in North Wales, you said you liked sport. You were good at sport. Yep. What kind of sports you do? I was doing a bit of everything, you know. I was football, athletics from cross country. That was probably my number one. Um, I could run for miles, you know. Javelin, shot put. The lot. I was very competitive. Rugby as well. Not a big build, but I used to rug. Mm. Love rugby. You know, run down the wing there. It's. Uh, I used to get involved in everything. I was very much a kinesthetic learner. Mm-hmm. You know, I would be very practical, very physical learner from hands-on um, experience rather than being in the classroom and then learning from the tutors sort of teaching me their ways and their life lessons. It just went in one way, out the other. Uh, and I didn't really know that in school growing up I just thought why is everyone paying attention why are they finding this interesting what are they learning from this you struggled did you struggle to learn I would say I struggled to sit still yeah yeah I would take it in and you know I I learned enough to pass my exams to get me on to on to college Uh, but I would say it was when I went to college that I then was starting to learn more of that that way of learning from a kinesthetic point of view you know I would be very I'd be almost in the theory I would be getting the theory done, scraping by with a pass just to get that out of the way. And then when I was in the mountains, when I was winter mountaineering, when I was doing the physical, sort of the rock climbing, that's when I really thrived. And, you know, I remember going up to Scotland with the rest of the, with the, rest of the students. I think that was 15 of us all together. And they had spent their grant money because you get a grant in the first year of college. I think I was 16 at the time. They had spent their grant money on what they should have spent on, which is proper Gore-Tex waterproof trousers and boots and jackets. I think it was like a 500 grant. And um, I didn't. I spent mine on modifying my car, you know. I was just bumpers spraying my car black. Ridiculous, really. So I ended up trekking in Adidas overalls non-waterproof sort of football trainers, if you like, magic gloves, you know, that were like 99 pence. But I was always in front of the group, sort of setting setting the the path, um, which is actually when the mountain's covered in snow, you set the path, the first fresh footprints, Mm -hmm. and then the team behind you, it becomes easier. And the last person is almost steps. Yeah, in a slipstream. Exactly. I used to swim as a kid, and when you were in the front of the lane, um, it was hard. It was easy to kind of nestle in behind. Yeah. It's obviously still tricky, but it's a little bit easier. Exactly, yeah. And I found that they were just complaining. They were miserable. And I was like, ah, okay, they thrived in the classroom, but they're not thriving out here. Yeah. Whereas it was the opposite. I was cold. It was pretty miserable. It was, what, Ben Nevis, minus 10, minus 15. But, you know, I was setting the pace, 16, 17 years of age, still smiling. And I was just like, hmm. And I think it was in college that maybe I was learning to then push myself even more. And I got curious, curious about the world, curious mm. about myself. How far can I go? Just oh. from little stuff like that, like Ben Nevis, you know? Mm. It was, uh, I was going to ask, when did you realise there's a way bigger world out there than old Colwyn? A very young age, mm-hmm. in all fairness. Yeah, a very young age. And I just remember being 15 again 14 15 hanging around with my friends and we were doing the same shit every day you know after school we would go around we would hang around in my friend's attic you know we'd put in boxing gloves we would fight we would drink they would smoke I was never into smoking and I always had these plans and these aspirations and these dreams that this is only temporary what we're doing now because there's nothing better to do but eventually you know I will 
set off and, and do my own thing. And I would always try to motivate them to come and join me. And it could be stuff locally. Let's go check out the castle. Let's go trek that mountain. Mm-hmm. They were just never interested. Always about sort of drinking and yeah. fighting and talking about girls, talking about the latest fights. You know, just silly stuff that I kind of knew I need to break off eventually. And there's much bigger stuff out there than what's going on here in this small little town. And uh, I didn't know how to make it happen. I had never boarded a plane on my own at, at you know that age, but I knew that I needed to make something happen fast. Um, so something was always brewing from a young age. And that was a deep down intrinsic desire. I think so, yeah. And I think stories, you know, seeing pictures, watch, as I said, watching documentaries. But then I had an uncle from Zimbabwe in South Africa. Mm. I've always, my granddad as well, he lived in Karachi for 21 years in Pakistan. Mm. He was a poor man, lived on someone's roof that whole time. And, you know, he, I don't, I don't really fully know him. I've only met him three or four times in my life, probably known him, what, three, four months altogether um, at the time I've spent with him. But maybe some stories rubbed off. Maybe it's genetics. He's got wild stories. And so is my uncle Dennis from South Africa. And I think maybe from a young age, age six, seven, eight, nine, ten, yeah. there's stories that they would share about the world, about the wildlife, about these adventures. And me being heavily influenced by, you know, um, land, air and sea, doing different activities, James Bond, Action Man, all of this. I think I was just like, I wonder, I wonder if there is a life out there for me. But right there and then people were going to school, people were going to college, then they would go to university or the military and then they would get a local job. They might venture to a nearby city and get a, a, a job in that city. And just that was, that's great for, great for some great for people if you learn that way but for me it just felt like I learned in a different way and I wanted a different path but I just didn't know so whilst everyone in college had it figured out joining the military uh, applying for different universities I was really stuck and I was like fucking hell what am I going to do you know I'm working in a fish and chip shop I'm making £3.10 an hour I need to change my job first and foremost because that shit's not going to get me anywhere so then I became a waiter I then became a a lifeguard I was waiting at um, a brewer's fair in <laughs> near Clandidno. What was it called? Avon Conway. <laughs> yeah, so I was just waiting on. I think I was making, must have been about £4.50. Ooh, £4. nice little pay rise. Yeah, right. Couple of quid extra. Yeah. Boom, yeah. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Ogogo Fitness. Ogogo Fitness is my brand new fitness app. I'll be launching really, really soon. I've created this app so I truly want to help people. I believe everybody should have the right to exercise and be fit and be healthy. I brought this to the world to promote physical health and mental health. I've designed 60 preset seven minute workouts ranging in difficulty from round one, which is pretty easy to round 12, which is really, really challenging. As well as that, I've got my personal workout builder. I've created 50 different exercises and you have the choice to create your own playlist from the 50 different workouts, which gives you an option of over 80 million combinations of workouts. So from your GoGo Fitness app, you can literally choose for millions and millions and millions of workouts personalized for you and what you're training for. So head over to agogofitness.com, register your interest, and be the first know when Agogo Fitness is launching. You know, I was uh, I was then staying disciplined. I got rid of that car. It was only a Mark One Renault Clio, a couple of hundred pounds. Got rid of it, made a couple of hundred pounds, which nice. was a lot of money for me then. Businessman. Yeah, right, entrepreneur, <laughs> up and coming. <laughs> and uh, and that was it. I then became a lifeguard, which was 
You cracked it, mate. Eight you cracked it. <laughs> yeah. And then I was just no nights out, no hanging around in my friend's loft drinking. I was just disciplined and I knew that I wanted to make something happen, mm. earn the money and head off. But I also knew it was important to invest in myself. So I was yeah. looking at gaining my scuba diving qualifications nice. because all of my friends were saying, yeah, but you're going to go traveling and you're just going to do a gap year. You're going to come back. We would have moved on and progressed with our lives, with their careers. And, you know, they were right to some extent and that fucking terrified me. So yeah. I was like, right. I need to not be so reliant on old Colwyn to make money. I need to invest in myself, gain qualifications to find work abroad, to top up the funds, to continue traveling until I find an opportunity out there that resonates, until I find my passion, find my niche, because I know that there are plenty more options and opportunities that my careers advisor is laying out, right? Uh -huh. So uh, I just needed to find them. And I knew that being out there in the big wide world, I would come across something that, that took my fancy. That's fantastic, man. I think investing in oneself mm. is so important to do. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I think it's good to, great to have an idea, but I think it it's that plan of action. And in that plan of action, there needs to be a method whereby it's almost a plan B inside the plan A. So plan B should never be plan A fail. Let's fall back onto mm -hmm. the previous plan. It's plan A, but within that plan A, you need a plan B there mm -hmm. to keep you on plan A. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was my way of, you know, not coming back and working in a fish and chip shop, but finding abroad as a, as a master scuba diving instructor. And for those that, uh, people that do work in fish and chip shops or are yeah. waiters and, and, and stuff, nothing wrong with that. No. There's nothing wrong. And that's, that, that, that's great for them. If that's what they like to do, then, then that's great. Yeah. I'm sure people do that and they're very, very happy. Yeah. But people like yourself, people like myself, you have that, that desire to break out and do something a bit different. Yeah. Um, was it just curiosity that was that thing for you that wanted to make you break out and, and travel the world? I think so, but I also think it was I wanted to face adversity. Mm. I wanted to mould myself, become a man, you yes. know? And I, I, I did think... Now we're talking, mate. Adversity, now we're talking. Yeah, you know, I was, I was kind of like, how do I... <sighs> There's only a certain amount of, how can I put it, sort of growing up that you can do in your local town. Yes. Where you're not really, you are pushing yourself to a certain degree, but you're going to be far, you're going to be pushed far more when you're completely, without sounding sort of like, um, categorizing it is like comfort zone, which is very sort of, you know, not niche, but yeah. what's the word I'm looking for? Um, generic. Generic, yeah. I wanted to push myself in a way that, I really would not know how I would feel. Yeah. You know, I wanted to face situations and scenarios that were embarrassing, that were dangerous, that were, you know, uh, borderline near death, that were life-changing, that would develop me as a person, that I would learn from, which would ultimately make me a better man when I come back. And, yeah. you know, and, and I didn't know what I was going out to. I went off traveling and, you know, I, I wanted to learn from the locals, learn from different cultures, learn from different traditions, learn about myself, learn about the world. But I ultimately, I didn't know where that was leading to, but I knew that it would put me a step ahead so that when an opportunity did arise, whatever that might be, I might be slightly more better, uh, better prepared and ready for that opportunity yeah. now that I've left rather than, you know, staying at home, not really pushing, not really challenging myself, mixing with the same frame of mind, mm. mixing with the same friends and um, work colleagues, you know, it just didn't, it just wasn't for me. Malcolm X has a great quote. I've just found it. Yeah. There is no better teacher than adversity. Yes. Every defeat, every heartbreak, every loss, 
contains its own seed, its own lesson on how to improve your performance the next time, the next time, the next time. There's always another one. There's always the next time. Yeah. Right? When I hear, when I hear you talk, man, you said so much just then. It's like you just you're such an inspiring man. When I heard you talk, I I think of the hero story where you, the hero, they go out and they find challenge and they find adversity and they struggle. They go again and they struggle. Then they achieve. Then they come back home and they share their story. Mm. And that's what you do. It's like you are the, the the hero story. You go out and you you face these difficulties and you challenge and you struggle, but you overcome, you improvise, adapt, overcome, you come back and you do the rounds doing podcasts and you've got, you've, you've got books out and you share your experiences for people for their benefit. I love that, mate. Awesome. Yeah, appreciate what, that. What a legend. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what really fascinates me about you, right, you've got so many amazing things to your name, so many credits to your name. But what really, really, really impresses me is you don't, you don't just, just, I don't want to say just, if you break a world record, yeah. that's unbelievable. If you break a record, unbelievable, yes. right? That's amazing. Sure, yeah. A Guinness world record, goodness me. I mean, I'd love to have one before I die. I don't know what it's going to be in now, but I'd love to have <laughs> oh, one. There we go, set. But you are the first person to do it. Not just break... Just not just breaking a record, but yep. being the first person to set a record. Like until you do it, it's impossible. Mm. Never been done before. Yeah. Then you have a an idea in your head. Oh, I'm gonna do this. No matter how hard it is, how long it's gonna take, how much, how much you almost almost nearly die, you're gonna do it. And yeah. you've had you've had three of those three Guinness first world record. Amazing, amazing, mate. So, <laughs> just tell me about that. I mean, having the idea, the idea coming to to fruition, and going out and executing it. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, effectively, to run it to run it back, I obviously worked in a fish and chip shop, worked as a waiter, lifeguard. I was pretty much trying to save as much money as I possibly could. I also met a friend in lifeguard and who said he wants to come traveling with me. So we had this sort of spider diagram. We had this list of lots of sort of achievable goals, steps that we needed to take ultimately to achieve the final step, which was to travel. And fast forward two years, at age 19, me and my friend Matt finally left. And the first destination we went to was China. And we were in China for about two weeks. Uh, let's rewind a little bit. Yeah. So normally when you leave yes. um, the UK, France. Yeah, right. Is a, is a, is a, <laughs> is a pretty solid destination. You can speak a bit of English. Easy way in, nice. Easy way in. It's, yeah. it's different, but not too different, you know. Maybe yeah. Holland, right? Maybe you want to be a bit cheeky and go to Spain. <laughs> I've been to China. It's so different. Why <laughs> China? It is. And it, it's because of that, mm. because of how different it was. I thought, well, what will give us that real culture shock? Where can we go to as a country that is completely different to the UK? And this was the first time you'd left the This UK. was the first time that I'd left the UK on my, on my travels. Yeah. Yeah. I'd done family holidays when I was younger, Europe, America, but uh, never Asia, never, never China. And so, yeah, me and my friend boarded the plane, age 19, just late teenagers, you know backpacks that's it we set off for four years was our initial plan you know wow. what so as a teenager 19 years old when i was 19 yeah i thought i was a man i thought i'm a geezer i'm a man yeah i know this i know that in reality looking back i was a baby yeah i looked like a baby yeah i thought like a baby and for me i became a man when i was 23 and my mum was very ill and, and and the olympic games so those two things made me become a man you at nineteen. What? Where are you in your in your evolution from being a boy to a man? 
I felt I was a boy. I would al- I always told myself I will leave a boy. I will come back a man. Mm. Um, but you know, I I was sort of arrogant in a way, confident. I had this sort of confidence that it was not necessary because what could I be confident? I hadn't achieved anything at that stage. I think it was just the state of huge enthusiasm that I had. I was very excited, very enthusiastic about what I was planning, what I was attempting. And it felt like I had cut away. I'd done something sort of very unorthodox that people don't really do. And I didn't know what I was flying into. When I left for China, we had a rough itinerary of where we would go, but we didn't really know what would happen. We had a few things on the bucket list that we wanted to tick, but we didn't know what we would really experience. Which were some of the bucket list items? Some of the bucket list was um, the Great Wall of China, the world's highest bungee jump, eating tarantula, visiting Angkor Wat. <laughs> yeah, you know, all of this sort of weird, wacky stuff. Um and then going over to Australia, you know, topping up the funds, working as a fruit picker, you know, and we knew that it was going to be cheap. We literally left on a shoestring budget. I think we had, at that stage, we had saved £10,000, but to last us four years of travelling. So we went out there with the intentions of, let's not spend any more than £1 on food. Let's not spend any more than two pound on accommodation. And we were legitimate. You know, I remember my sister inviting me out for her birthday meal. And I went there and I lied at the dinner table and said that I had eaten. I was starving. But the restaurant that she chose, it was like 12 to 15 pounds for a meal. That for me back then was a lot. Yeah, I was like, that could get me a whole week accommodation in Thailand. What are you thinking? So I didn't. I was like, oh, no, but if you, you know, if you don't finish your food, I'll be here. (laughs) I did. I ate the leftovers. That's how sort of disciplined I was to save the money so shoestring budget and I went out to effectively you know the great unknown for me I Mm. hadn't I had never done anything like this before and uh, but when I first arrived I guess I adapted pretty fast after two weeks I already found I was on the beaten track I was on touristic buses going to the Great Wall of China sort of university students on the gap you were talking about when they go back to uni in America or the UK what they're going to do and I was just like I want to mix with the locals I don't want to. I don't want to have like it's great because I'm meeting people from all over the world. Some of them became friends, you know, probably for life. But I wanted to. I was in China. I don't want to meet people who were going to university in Manchester when I've just flown all the way to China. Yeah. I don't want to watch the movies in the in the hostel because they all sort of go out, they drink, they hungover, then they whack on a movie. And I love that saying off the beach, the movie, the beach, my favorite film of all time. Is people end up traveling thousands of miles just to wind up doing the same damn thing. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want that. And after two weeks, I felt like I was in it. You know, same photo, same story, same experiences. And then we went down to Cambodia. Me and my friend, we were sulking on the Mekong Riverbank because we had spent more money than we anticipated. You know, we were drinking a Dr. Pepper, eating crisps. And I was just like, what the fuck are we doing? We came out here to, to travel, to adventure. You know, we didn't come to do all of this sort of stuff and we've spent way more money than we anticipated. I said, let's just do something different. And he was like, yeah, but what? And I was just like, no, man, let's let's just get the most ridiculous and cheapest bicycles that we can find. Let's just cycle the entire length of Cambodia and Vietnam. <laughs> and I mean, that's so different. So that's different. so different. Right? So, so why does your brain go there? I, because there's mixing with the locals, yeah. then there's getting a shit bike. Yeah. We've broken the spokes yeah. and cycling a vast country. Over 1,100 miles it was of a country that we had never been to before. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was, one, to get away from the tourist track, 
the tourist trap and two was to mix and mingle more with the locals you know I was in Cambodia I want to see the Cambodians I want to I don't want to be traveling like now I get it now that I'm older I understand that whole travel route and why they did it but I was 19 and I wanted to really be out there you know but what did your mate say he laughed and he said yeah but on what bikes and literally as he said that I still remember it clearly we just hit screeching noises behind us, you know, and ee, 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 ee. <laughs> what the fuck is that? We turn around and it's this small, skinny, frail old lady on this ridiculous looking bicycle, handlebars all sort of bent, her elbows tucked in. And it looked like a bike that we could afford. <laughs> I laughed and I said, look, let's just get two of those. Two local Cambodian bikes, traditional Cambodian bikes that the old lady cycling. And let's attempt to cycle the entire length of Vietnam. And Cambodia, and he was in, and he laughed. He says, "Let's let's do it." And everyone it, needs a mate like that. Yes, no matter how ludicrous your suggestion the, is, yeah. good, let's do it. Yeah, mate, I'm glad you had. He, that he was the best travel companion because there was a lot of shit that I came up with because I was very active. You know, I was always thinking of these mad ideas, and he somehow just laughed and said, "Okay." He just agreed all the time. Let's do that, um, and we did that same day. We spent ten dollars. What, eight pounds, nine pounds on, on bicycles and you know, they didn't have no suspension, there was no gears, there was we didn't take a puncture repair kit, we didn't even have a pump for the bike. We got a non waterproof tent that cost us five dollars that was split between us. We were living off noodles and Red Bull that cost us thirty pence per day. Hammock shops where we kept the night under shelter in a hammock for twenty pence per night. Chased by dogs, hit by mopeds, dodged by lorries, crazy roads in Vietnam and Cambodia. And the last day we ended up cycling over 39 hours straight, no sleep. And and, and you're just two fellas from, from Wales, right? Yeah. Two young lads with like a lot of, I guess, testosterone. Yeah. And desire to be something a little bit different to what you grew up in. Yes. You're not trained to do this is what no. I'm saying. No. You've just got an ambition and a desire and a will to do it. Yeah. And we were reckless. It was full hardy. Like the bikes broke 17 times. They were like to take the old ladies to work and back. They weren't to travel. They weren't to traverse countries, you know? And the bikes broke. The pedals would fall off as, as cycling up a hill. The, fed, the pedals would just drop off. Did you row, you two? Did you argue at all? You know, we didn't. Wow. We didn't. We, I mean, like, you we, seem impossible to argue with. You're so nice. I mean, honestly, you've got a nice little <laughs> smile. You got you talk about something and you've got this special glint in your eye, hasn't he? Hasn't he? He's got a little <laughs> glint in his eye. It's like... I mean, I'd, I don't like cycling. I mean, I, 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 yeah. don't, I like sport, but oh, my bum gets sore, my back aches. Yeah. But if you said to me, hey, mate, let's go and bike across, let's, let's go and bike across Ghana. Yeah. It'll take for ages. I'd go, go on in, let's take it. You've got this, oh, I want to be around. Yeah, that's it. He's infectious that's enthusiasm. Good. That's what I got Matt with. I was like, I've got another idea, Matt. You're going to love it, mate. <laughs> Let's, let's let's talk about let's talk about your greatest achievement. Yes. Achievement. Yeah. Like how how was it when you were named the seventh coolest Welshman? Oh, that <laughs> that was pretty damn special. That was you know it wasn't quite number one. As Mate, I was, uh, damn, I'm annoyed. Mate, I was on the tube this morning just before yeah. you said hello to me on the tube. We yeah. met each other randomly on the tube today, yeah. going to the to the first podcast studio. Bizarre. Anyway, long story. Anyway. So I was scrolling through Wales online. And you became you were you were announced as the seventh coolest Welshman in the world. That pissed me off. Like <laughs> top three, right? I think top three. You should be knocking <laughs> on the door. Although saying that, you did beat. I mean, I wrote this down. You did beat Kelly Jones. 
stereophonics, yes. and you beat uh, Taron Egerton, who's obviously a Hollywood actor. So, and Gareth Bale. Gareth Bale. You beat Tom, Tom Jones. Jones. Tom Jones should have been number one in all fairness. We'll get we'll get Tom Jones. Yeah, I mean maybe yeah. <laughs> But mate, no, but no, no, obviously I'm being silly saying, yeah. you know, but that's pretty cool. Yeah, though, no, right? That's pretty cool. cool. Yeah. There's some received, cool Welsh dudes out there. Yeah, there is. I received that halfway through my Madagascar expedition. So that was in 2015. So I saw that. That was good motivation. Yeah. I was like, yeah, look at this. So they did it. If they did it now, you're hoping to be what? Top three, top five? <laughs> Surely. So let's see. <laughs> so, so with that being said, uh, you, you've, you've, set three world records yes and it all stemmed pretty much from i'd like to say that that vietnam cycle the reason why i was talking about that i'd like to say that that was probably the catalyst that's where i realized my niche my passion i was hooked on adventure and i said to matt like i'm i'm not done we this is the beginning i was like can you imagine at the end of my days a world map different routes that i cycled survived hacked through the jungle crossed the desert and it kind of is heading in that direction what did uh what did Matt do? Matt was also loving it at that stage. And he joined me when we crossed illegally from Thailand into Myanmar with a local to learn how to survive in the jungle with the Burmese hill tribe. Just okay. shetty in hand. That, that, that's ridiculous. You say it. And I've, li- I've listened to you the last few days now because I've been doing research for this. Yeah. And you throw things away. <laughs> Massive, unbelievable things. You just go, bosh. When we legally cro- crossed <laughs> yeah. the country of Myanmar, I think the, you're allowed to go there now, but back then you weren't allowed to go there. Right. Yeah, you, you, you can go there now, but I think you still need a visa. But back then it was closed down to all Westerners, but we, we went through the jungle where there's no border control. With Snuck in with a knife. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Rambo, that's as Rambo as you get. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. And it was sketchy, and maybe that's why I breeze over it because I shouldn't really shout about that too much. <laughs> but I do, you know, I do. Uh, I mean, I would if, it, if I if yeah, I would, I would. You know, but it was all of these. It was that. It was then cycling across a section of Australia. It was hitchhiking North Australia after breaking down in the wild. It was all of these little adventures that really played a huge part. I then settled in Thailand as a master scuba diving instructor and Muay Thai fighter. Matt was with me all the way up until that point um he didn't do the muay thai he went the more sensible route and went the thai lessons he's like fluent in in thai Fantastic. language um but he was also a scuba diver and then it's when i came up with the idea with mongolia and i ran this by him i think it was in the in the hostel one evening we were still living in hostels um and it was stormy outside and i was telling him this idea to hike across mongolia about the Gobi Desert, about the sandstorms, about the snow blizzards, about the the Kazakh tribe that live in the far west of the country that hunt down um, foxes and even wolves with eagles perched on their arms. Mm. You know, the reindeer tribe up north, how it's the most desolate country, one of the des- most sparsely populated countries in the world, how there's wolves. How and I think he just never spoke to me about that specific adventure again and i got the hint he's like this is i've, I've done all of these adventures with you ash you know you, you're now getting reckless with them and i don't want to be part of that journey so i respected that and then uh you know and i realized yeah they are getting reckless with this one it won't be recklessly planned like my previous adventures because they really were planned very recklessly very last minute let's just do it we didn't even have a map cycling cambodia vietnam we didn't as i said no puncture repair kit 
Um, we found string on the side of the road that we strapped our rucksack onto the back of the bike. A little pink bell. We took a loaf of bread and peanut butter. That was it, you know. But there's re- safety there. Yes, it's a road and it's it's dangerous because the the trucks and the bikes. But where there's a road, there's people, and if there's people, there's food, there's water, which means there's safety. Whereas what I was about to attempt with Mongolia would totally change that, you know. Um, and I didn't know it was a world record. I was doing it anyway. I wasn't in it for the record. I was in it for the adventure. You know, I thought, wow, can you imagine walking 100 miles across Mongolia or 200 miles? And then each day it started to creep bigger and bigger. And I was like, maybe north to south of the country till eventually I was like, let's walk from west to east across the country. And I couldn't find anyone that would want to join me. No one wanted to join me. They were like, no, it's suicide. So I decided let's, I'm doing this solo and unsupported. Um, and it was unsupported. I know it sounds really silly, but I need to ask it. Yeah. Unsupported means no support no, anywhere. Yeah, no. So, so there's a few people that say unsupported and they've got a van following them like five, ten miles behind. That's that's not unsupported. That's supported, I believe. Mm. With me, it was um, completely unsupported, whereby my insurance was invalid. My evacuation plan was the most basic. Um, which Which was what? Which was if I was in trouble. Scream help, help me! Yeah, if I was, I had a text only satellite device with me that I would text uh, my agent in the capital city, Ulaanbaatar, and I'd need to allow at least three to four days for him to get me and another two days for him to get me out to safety. Whereas if I stood on the back end of a snake, six days you're talking, it's just not doable. Wait, Whereas you- the previous guy who, the first person actually ever to attempt, a solo and unsupported trek across Mongolia. He was a soldier. He was a desert explorer across the Sahara Desert. He attempted this three times, but was evacuated on all three occasions. Mm. Um, and that story alone, I will, I'll get to that, but that almost put me off Mongolia as a whole because then that's when I started to feel a bit naive as to what I'm up against. You know, a legit badass had, you know, and he looked like Jason Statham. He was, he was late 30s. He was an experienced motherfucker. Mm. And I was effectively a beach bum Muay Thai fighter making pennies whilst scuba diving. Had never been to the desert before. Had certainly never tested myself. Never done any real map and compass. And never re- really done any survival other than the Burmese Hill Tribe, you know? So, a couple of things. <clears throat> You've used the word reckless numerous times. Yeah. Are you reckless? Not anymore. Right now, it's very, it's meticulously planned. It's clear attention to detail. It's solid teams in place, a big team around it now. But back then, yeah, it was very reckless. But I needed to go there in order to get here. And I'm sure you've experienced yourself along your career. You needed to do some pretty reckless, pretty stupid stuff. You look back on it and you think, fucking hell, maybe you got lucky there. Mm-hmm. But you had to go there to get here. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those. Is it age and wisdom? I think it you... is. I think it's age, wisdom. It's building up those track habits, the experience and also building up that kudos where you're able to prepare better with also a good team around you because with Mongolia everyone just deemed it impossible people had tried people had failed I couldn't get brands on board they'd be like well who are you what have you done good question I haven't really done anything and I'm not really a name you know I'd speak to agencies and there's travel agencies or logistics agencies and there was never any reason for them to to get involved Hmm. they had no reason to believe that I would be the first to do it you know they would be like, well, a military officer has tried three times. Why do you think at the age of 22 you can do it? And it was a very good, legit question. Yeah. So let me ask you the question now. Why could a man 
an experienced soldier that's been trained in all sorts of terrain, 30, late 30s, rugged, resilient. Why could he not succeed? But a 22-year-old beach boy, like you said, mm. uh, why yourself, why did you succeed? I think there's a there's a few different reasons, but I think one of the main reasons is I held probably a lot more fear than him. And I you think had he- held a lot more oh, fear. Yeah. yeah, I think he was probably a lot more confident, whereas maybe there were certain things that slipped. Oh, interesting. Whereas I think I was shit scared. I would have nightmares and I had a lot of doubt, but I had announced it, I had committed. I told people I'm going to do it and I'm a man of my word. I, I'm going to stick to it. Um, and so that meant that I trained and got all of the logistics in, in place. And that meant, in a way, it was reckless to some extent with evacuation plan. But I didn't have any other alternative. I didn't have the finance to put in place a better evacuation plan. And the record was to do it solo and unsupported. And all insurance companies don't support solo and unsupported expeditions. So that wasn't an option either. Because the chance of dying is so great. The chance of having to get rescued is such a high. Yeah. Well, that's never been done before. Yeah, they just don't do it. And I tried every insurance company. So did my logistics manager. I really got big teams involved on this one who were helping voluntarily, putting their time into help. I was going to ask. They asked. They wanted to help because they saw a young man with a dream and a desire and yeah. they wanted to be involved. And also for your own safety. Because yeah. you sound like you were going to do it anyway whether you had a team or not. Exactly. And much rather you'd be safe, as safe as one could be than yeah. just being a young kid doing it. It was that, yeah. And I think by the time that I... So as I mentioned, I was a scuba diver in Thailand. As I started to do extensive research... Uh, you know, I was, I was trying to team up with the Guinness Book of Records. I was teaming up with the Royal Geographic Society in London who cover all expeditions, um, big or small. I had on-ground logistics in Mongolia, which was super important. And I was really getting all of these teams to do extensive research to find evidence to suggest that someone had or hadn't attempted this trip before. And that's how we came across the guy who previously attempted it. And I wrote to him. I sent an email Um that's smart. Yeah, a very amateur email, but I wanted to look for the dangers. You know, what do I need to look out for? And he got back and he said, he was a nice guy, and he said the dangers you've got is the the dry wells, the stagnant water, the drunken nomadic drifters, the snow blizzards, the sandstorms. The storms, drunken nomadic the drifters. Yeah. Sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, you know, these guys. Um, the wolves. Yeah, the yeah. wolves, yeah. And he got back and then I looked more into this guy and it's only then when I discovered who he was, what he yeah. had achieved, his experiences. I dismissed Mongolia. I put that aside. I was like, maybe do a safer country, more populated country, maybe do a country in Europe. But then as we spoke about before the podcast, you know, just because no one's found a way to do something doesn't mean it can't be done. I refocused my energy. I thought with this, if I do the right due diligence, if I if I plan it, if I train physically and mentally, why can't I why can't I achieve this? So I gave up my life in Thailand. I moved back to the UK with no more than two hundred pounds to my name. I moved in with my parents. They allowed me back. I didn't. I couldn't afford no gym membership. My uncle, he does sort of. He's a lorry driver. I, I said, look, if you're ever at a farm, because he does farm pickups and drop-offs, and you see a tractor tire, ask the farmer if I can have it. I did. He dropped me off a tractor tire with a sledgehammer. All of the training for a world first record was done in my back garden in the winter. And I was beasting myself for three hours, not because I was needed to be physically there, which I did, but I needed to be more so mentally there. 
and I was picturing every worst case scenario. If there's going to be wolves, expect to be attacked. If there's going to be blizzards, expect them to be the biggest and the baddest. Not yeah. because I wanted to face the biggest, but if I was anticipating worst case scenario and worst case was unfortunately bound to happen, at least I would have been mentally prepared enough to, yeah. to tackle it, to overcome it. You yeah. know, it's happened. You knew it. Crack on with it. I, know, I love that. In boxing, yeah. you'd always go in there thinking... This is this is the second comment of Mike Tyson. This guy, if he punches and he lands, I'm knocked out. Because yeah. when you go in there and they don't punch as hard, it's like, oh, that's a little win. Exactly. Yeah. You prepare for the was it prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Exactly. And I think that's a good way of living life if you're a certain type of person doing a certain yeah. type of thing. Yeah. And I um, think that's maybe what what it potentially was. I think, and maybe it was the fact that I didn't have any options. So at the point where I actually almost lost my life in the desert, there was no evacuation plan. I didn't believe I could survive long enough for my local agent to pick me up and get me out. It was do or die at that point. And this was, so to paint a picture of, of that particular Mongolia trip, it was a 1,500 mile journey. Three weeks of that would be in the Altai Mountains. Five weeks of that would be in the Gobi Desert. And a further three weeks would be in the Mongolian Steppe. Solo and unsupported. What's just Mongolian Steppe? The Mongolian Steppe is like rolling hills and fields of grassland. Okay. Um, and because it was solo and unsupported, I couldn't just take a rucksack. I would need to uh, carry a, a large amounts of water across the Gobi Desert because there's confirmed and there's unconfirmed water sources in the form of either local communities or mainly wells. So that meant I had to pull a trailer behind me and that trailer weighed 18 stone, 120 mm. kilograms or 260 pounds. And what do you weigh? About I, 65? I weigh about 65, 70 kilograms. Yeah, okay, so 10, 10, 11 stone. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, not quite two times your body weight, but, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, probably almost two times my body weight when I was in the desert and I lost maybe 10 oh, kilograms. Oh, wow, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so... And so that trailer carried everything that I needed to survive. That was my life capsule. It had weeks worth of ration packs, months worth of ration packs. It had water. Water container on its own was 20 litres, which is 20, 20 kilograms kilos, yeah. already. On an empty load. Stone. Yeah, and because I couldn't find a or partner with a, a factory to make a carbon fibre sort of factory-built trailer, I contacted a, a, a family friend, Paul McDonald, and he built a mild steeler trailer in his backyard. Cheers, Paul. Which, well done, Paul. Which on an empty load, it's already 40 kilograms. It's mm. mild steel, but that meant it was going to be ro robust. Because mm. if that trailer broke on me, I would be screwed. And when I was in the desert, to speak about sort of no option of evacuation, I think the Altai Mountains was so cold, maybe about minus 15 at times, that I didn't really feel the need to drink water. And then when I broke out into the, into the desert, I was probably already slightly dehydrated. And by the middle of the desert, because it was a five-week crossing of the Gobi, I start to face severe dehydration. But I now at this point had to ration my water because there were confirmed and unconfirmed water sources. And if I was to rock up to an unconfirmed water source, I need to make sure I've got enough to last me to that next confirmed water source. But that's easier said than done. It's 40 plus degrees Celsius. Mm. There's no shade. There's no clouds going by. There's no trees. There's there's no breeze. The wheels are now sinking in what is often gravel, but a mix of soft sand. So it's feeling more like 500 kilograms. I'm skinnier. I'm weaker because I've just climbed over the Altai Mountains over 3,000 meters. And my only shelter or shade that I could find was underneath my trailer. And even the ground, the floor was hot, melting. 
And the weeks went by, I started to slip severely into heat stroke, which is usually fatal. Uh-huh. I could almost feel my organs drying up inside. I've heard you say that. Explain what that means. Explain what I you mean al- by that. I could almost feel, you know, like when you're really dehydrated and you feel it in your mouth, in your throat, it was almost so dehydrated that I could feel it on my insides. I was desperate. I was desperate. Oh, your insides drying up. I could almost feel that they weren't functioning. Yeah. And I'm very in tune with my body. You know, I could feel that there was just... So, and I knew there wasn't something right, but to feel that was, was you know, horrendous. And I, at this point, I was sort of hallucinating. I was delirious. And you, and just to just to remind everyone listening to this, you're by yourself. Yeah. You're by yourself. And I've, I've just, super quick, like, tangent, I've just done uh, Celebrity SES Who Dares Wins. Yeah. And I don't know when this is going to air, so I can't talk too much about it. But um, I was on my own for three and a half hours doing this task um, and really physically draining, demanding task for three and a half hours. And when you've got nobody to say, well done, keep going, almost there, well done, a pat on the back. It's hard, man. It's really hard. And you've got nobody for, you've got nobody not just for miles away or hours away, Days away, goodness! Yeah. You don't seem like a, 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 a what's it, as a masochist. You don't seem like a. You you seem so normal. Yeah, yeah. So when you're in that moment, what's pushing you to keep going? Keep going. I think a few different things, but I do remember I was under that trailer for a good hour at times, and I just knew I I can't do that. I can't resting or seeking resting. refuge. Yeah, just hiding away no. from that sun. sun. It was burning. And I just felt like I was just red. I felt blistered up. I just, I was in a very bad state and I had to ration this. So as much as I really needed to drink, I had to ration the last remaining dribbles of water. And this was now hot water. Not that it mattered, but it's now hot water that I had to ration. But but when, again, again, I've done another TV show where like, I did a Bear Girls TV show, The Island, a few years ago. And like, yeah. we had to drink water. We had to go and find water source and, and, and filter the water and stuff. And um, when people think, oh, water, people just think cold. But when you're so thirsty, like so unbelievably thirsty, and you pour warm water in your mouth, it just doesn't hit. That's it. It's just not the same. Yeah. It's not the same. Yeah, no, it wasn't. And I really had to, I had to manage that last remaining dribbles of water. And when I was under my, under my trailer, that's when it, it hit. I kind of realized, I calculated how many times I've stopped compared to the distance that I'm covering. I then worked out my evacuation plan should I need it and I realised I was past the point of pickup because at that point I understood that I don't think I can survive six days and that was the scary thing. Mm. If I didn't keep getting up from out of the trail and pushing on, I could quite possibly die out here in the Gobi Desert mm. and it was almost like that internal scream and that took a while because a lot of the time I just was feeling sorry for myself, I was thinking about my family, about my friends I was thinking where I fucked up here, what could I have done differently? Mm. And, and then and there's a continuous internal battle. Yeah. In, there's conflict in your head. Yeah, there is. Yeah. And then it was at that point I realized that I only have one option. That shook me. I think probably it hit that real, it, it, that real internal survival instinct. I think that we all have in the face of death. And it was that, holy shit, I can't be sitting here feeling sorry for myself, thinking about my family and friends. If there's only one option, I must try my best to execute that only option that I have. And I did. I couldn't, at this point, I had four 
days to the next water source and it was a community I could rest up there. I couldn't visualize. I'm, I'm a big believer in the law of attraction, visualization. Four days was hell. That may as well have been four weeks to me in that current state that I was at. But I could visualize 100 meters. I could see 100 meters. And I remember being in my back garden when I was 15, 16, planning my, my travels and speaking to my dad and saying, how on earth am I going to raise the money? You know, get the right vaccines, get the right visas, plan, you know, this to plan for my travels. How am I going to do this? And my dad sat down with me in my back garden and created that first ever spider diagram for me and said, you need to focus on this first. You need to focus on selling your car, get yourself a bicycle. That will stop you from spending this much on tax, MOT and fuel. You'll save that much and you can put it towards this, you know, which will be the, the visas or the flight you need to. And he pretty much broke down this mind map. And little did he realize, fast forward a certain amount of years later, that that would potentially, oh, it went on to save my life. I focused on 100 meters. I could see 100 meters. And don't spend an hour under my trailer, five minutes. And by doing that, I focused on five minutes. I'd get up, I'd strap the four-point harness, the, the trailer. I would walk. I could only cover 100 meters, 200 meters if I was lucky, max, before all the lactic acid build up, before the sun would be too much. I'd have to hide, but I'd hide for five minutes. And I did that for four days in the Gobi Desert until I eventually made it to that community. I collapsed. I was in a bad way. You know, it took me a good eight days to recover. My urine was pretty much black. It was... Uh, yeah, frightening experience, but I had made it past the worst part, the part where the previous guy evacuated. Uh, your piss was black from the blood? Yeah. Blood, yeah. I think, um, or, or it was getting that that way. It was really dark. Mm. It was really dark urine. Yeah, have a, we've been there, mate, when you're dehydrated, uh, boxing, a few kidney shots. I've had some interestingly coloured pisses in the past. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a great life lesson and now of course people listen to this this is a getting back up podcast this isn't a, a sport po podcast or or anything else this is a podcast anybody can listen to and be inspired by and you said something really special just then which really hit with me and i want people to be able to really take the lessons from the from the nuggets of inspiration that you sprinkle around it's like you couldn't see four days. You couldn't visualize four days, but you yeah. could visualize a hundred meters. Like you haven't got to see the whole staircase, but you can see one step. It's one step. Like we have these big dreams as people. We have big dreams or small dreams or ambitions, and oftentimes we can't see it. I've been there. Like I want to create an empire. I want to have loads of things, and I'm a million miles away from that. When I first opened my eye and had to retire from boxing, I couldn't see myself being happy again. Mm -hmm. Generally, I couldn't see myself. I couldn't see how I was gonna get beyond the end of the year without killing myself and I almost didn't but ultimately it was I can smile today um, and that sounds really small but I can smile today the next day I can smile twice then the third day and it's those little steps yeah. when you can't see the whole staircase just focus on that one step and that's what you did and that's why you're here today having this, having this chat because you made it out exactly thank yeah. goodness yeah 100% no you're bang on I think people sort of bog themselves down overcomplicate and they kind of look at the bigger picture and look mm -hmm. at the end goal and that's it. They can put themselves off. Like this journey with Mongolia, every single person, even uh, not my parents, but family members, my uncle, I remember him saying that you can't do this. He doesn't believe he supports it, but he doesn't think I'm going to do it. You know, to have that and have legitimate locals on the ground saying it's not possible as well. And I still went for it. You know, that message, I guess, is it doesn't matter if no one else can see it for you. Because what's important is if you can see it for yourself. Mm. And throughout all of that noise, whilst I did doubt myself, 
I don't anymore, but I did doubt myself because I had never done anything. I hadn't built up these track habits. I hadn't experienced this before. I didn't know what dehydration felt like. I didn't know what isolation going eight days without seeing a single person being stalked by a pack of wolves. I'd never done that, so how did I know how I was going to react? But now I've done it. And then I get, I grow in confidence step by step, trip by trip. Wow. I mean, what a guy. I still, I mean, when I was sitting next to him in the chair and he was telling me his stories, like, I just, I just felt so pumped. And listening back to it again, I just, I've got all this energy to listen to the, the words he says. He's such a, such an inspiring man. Uh, a couple of things, well, lots of things stood out to me. One, I think he was robbed. I think he's much cooler than a seventh coolest Welshman in the world. I think he's much cooler than that. Top three for sure. I think um, when he said, when he said he wrote it down, when he said um, he couldn't see four days, he couldn't visualize getting to the, the next community and being safe, but he could visualize 100 meters. 100 meters, stop for five minutes, sought refuge underneath his trailer for five minutes, and it'd go again. And that's life, right? That, that in itself is life. We have these big dreams and ambitions and they seem so lofty, seem so far. And people get, they get hung up on how far away they are. They, they, they feel that they can't attain them. So they stop, they don't do it. We've got to break them down in chunks, day by day, step by step. I loved how he went hundred meters and stopped. hundred meters and stopped. And as if, as if he was advertising my podcast, he said, if he didn't get back up, he was gonna die. You always have to get back up. Now, Ash Dykes, as I mentioned, as he's mentioned during a podcast, three world first records. There just wasn't enough time to cram into one episode. So, the big man Ash Dykes is the first person on the podcast to get a double episode, a two-parter. Join me again next week to hear Ash go into detail about cutting through the Madagascan trail having to cross rivers with alligators and crocodiles in there, getting malaria, almost dying, coming this close to dying. It's crazy. And all the Yangtze River, um, crazy stuff as well. So join me again next week for part two of Ash Dykes. Wherever you're going through, like Ash, it's bit by bit, step by step, 100 meters by 100 meters, take your time. Listen, in life, it gets hard and we're going to get punched and we're going to fall down, hopefully metaphorically and not literally. Going down is fine. All the greats went down. Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Mike Tyson. Everyone's been knocked down. But it's important to get back up. Ash got knocked down. He sought refuge underneath his trailer. But he always got back up. So please, 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 no matter what you're going through in life, two things, I beg of you, two things. One stay in the fight, and two, always get back up. I'll see you next week.